Good afternoon. I'm joined today by Ben Rubin. Ben has been looking at many things that have been major topics for the UK column, particularly for Deborah Evans. Um, areas such as the NHS, big data, data gathering and genomics. Before we get into those issues, uh, Ben, welcome. Um, I'd like to start with, just, if you could just give our audience a little background, who you are, um, what your experience is, and how you came to know what you currently know. Hi, I'm Ben Rubin. I'm a British citizen, and I'm an independent strategy consultant. And I spent the last 18 years or so working across pretty much the whole economic system, advising uh, chiefs, so people who run companies, CEOs, and the people who run the divisions within those companies on how to uh, move into new markets, improve operational performance, and particularly doing all of that using advanced technologies. And for the past kind of three, four, five years in particular, I've been working in and around the UK health system and spending a lot of time looking at what the NHS are doing, so reading their strategies and their future visions and where they're placing their investments. And in particular within that, looking at uh, uh, the introduction of things like genomics as a new type of medicine into the mainstream health system in the UK. Uh, I basically got a glimpse into the way that the system operates across the piece, right? So all of the different industry sectors were digitizing. In order to digitize or to help organizations digitize, you have to go in and understand how they run, uh, the different systems and processes that they employ. Fundamentally, what are they doing? How do they make money? What are the ownership structures that, that they use? Um, and basically going across the whole piece and looking into all the different components of, of the 21st century digitized, globalized, automated economic system. Yeah. Um, and in the early days, a lot of that was very much focused on the kind of less sensitive parts of the system. So things like media, the music industry, uh, newspapers and magazines, uh, all that kind of thing, the more kind of consumer facing stuff. Uh, but as time went on, the more sensitive industries, the more sensitive parts of the system began to digitize. And actually for the past kind of five, six, seven years in particular, that's really been biting into healthcare and the way that um, care is delivered, not just in this country, but everywhere internationally. And, um, you know, we've seen these advanced technologies have an enormous impact already, but they are projected to really kind of fundamentally take over, actually, the way that, uh, and, and dictate how things like healthcare are delivered. And, um, I find that extremely concerning. It is astonishing the change. I mean, in my in my lifetime, uh, my my son in, earns his earns his crust um, coding, writing software, and uh, creating things with uh, computers. Now, when I when I want to make him laugh, I tell him about my early experiences uh, with computers. So, one generation, just one generation. Uh, I was in the computing club at school computing club at school had no computers. Uh, we wrote code longhand and put it in an envelope and put a stamp on it. And it was sent uh, by post to Hamilton Teacher Training College who had a mainframe. And someone then typed it into the mainframe, ran it, and whatever output you got, put it in an envelope and posted it back. So that was how it was done. And that was the 80s. Um, so we've come a very, very, very long way in a very short time. Um, when we come to uh, matters relating to the more sensitive areas of healthcare and the NHS, this is an area that um, say Debbie, Debbie Evans has been talking about for some time. So she's seeing certain themes which she feels are vitally important. Um, so one is the, the data gathering uh, potential of the NHS. Because of the unique nature of the NHS, whether you like it or hate it or feel both simultaneously, um, the data gathering potential of the NHS, because it is this huge state funded, uh, apart from the Chinese army, I think the largest employer in the world, 
huge organization and it's and everybody's a part of it in the whole country they can gather data like no other organization anywhere in the world including the united states is able to do so you've got that you've then got genomics coming in providing information on the individual in a way that was that's entirely new um, you've got that uh, then f promoting or directing or inspiring um, big pharma to bring in new products for new forms of profit and th this forms a kind of um, uh, Bermuda Triangle of, of, of of problems because in this area you've got you've got the profit motive but you've got state-run organizations so you've got this interaction between the private sector and the public sector where choice disappears where um, consent tends to disappear so you have all of the problems of bureaucratic and authoritarian and totalitarian states with the added um, impetus of your know, large corporations seeking to make enormous sums of money. Debbie sees this as a tremendous threat to um, to the people of Britain um, and sees it as the avenue where um, uh, problematic treatments, ill thought out ideas are going to be delivered at a pace that will uh, prevent proper scrutiny um, and prevent people making informed choices. Um, I hope I, I hope when she sees this she thinks I've put her case well. Um, do you think that sort of um, problem that I've outlined to you is real? And uh, if you do, could you start to pick away at the ideas and, and information that, that led you to that position? Absolutely, yeah. I th so I think that Debbie's um, completely correct. Actually, yeah, uh, it, it is a it's a fundamental threat. Actually, I see it as as, as fundamental threat to, to not just the British people, but actually the whole uh, global population. I think it's a threat to humanity um, because the nature of digital platform businesses, let's just call them, is that they can be global very quickly and very efficiently. And the ambition of people building technology-enabled businesses, and they are primarily businesses enabled by a very compliant state, as you pointed out, is um, you know their strategy is to become as big as they possibly can. So essentially, what what they're looking to do is to create data-enabled, genomics-focused, uh, revenue and profit-generating organisations. Uh, and to create a new marketplace, essentially, on top of our health system. And the reason, as you pointed out, that they're able to do that particularly effectively and easily and quickly in the UK is, is partly to do with uh, the, uh, the nature of the NHS. As you said, it, it's a single integrated system. Um, you, you mentioned America as, a, as another example. Uh, actually, it's incredibly difficult in America to do the kind of thing that, um, that our health leaders, as they nominally call themselves, um, are doing because there's so much fragmentation in the system. It's delivered primarily through the private sector. Most of those organizations, whether that's individual doctors or health systems or um, you know, insurance providers, don't talk to each other. In fact, they're competing with each other to a certain extent. So there's no incentive or there hasn't been much incentive for them to share information to build these data platforms. Um, whereas in the UK, we've been building patient data platforms for several decades now. I mean, you, meant, you know, probably since the 80s, we've had um, fairly well-developed um, IT capabilities inside the NHS and we've been gathering you know, whoever's interacted with the health system, we've been gathering their data ever more and ever more sensitive amounts of data, amounts of data um, from the population. Uh, and um, it's absolutely, uh, it, it is kind of a perfect storm, right? Because you've got the, you've got the, uh, you've got the NHS, which can effectively mandate this stuff, right? Because everyone is a patient of the NHS. Um, you know, most of us are born in NHS hospitals, so right from birth, essentially, they have an opportunity to uh, 
to, 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 to tag you and bag you and, and take your information. Um, and they have been doing that for, for, for a long time. But now the type of information that they can take is, is much more sensitive. So they're already talking about um, putting uh, genomics, uh, uh, blood testing, taking blood samples into the neonatal pathway, right? So actually when you're a newborn, one of the first things that will happen to you is they'll take a blood sample that will go off sequencing and then that data would exist on your, your, your permanent health record is something that can be looked at and interrogated by people who have the ability to do that. Uh, but they're actually looking at doing in vitro testing now. And actually, as I understand it, they've already done a bunch of in vitro testing. So they're taking blood samples from children who haven't been born yet and are using that to generate genomic sequences and to put that into their database and to, to, to run experiments across it, essentially. Yeah. So, the, you know, the NHS is, is, is a has been a really important part of this. It, it, it is marketed as such internationally right and the, some of the partnerships that are in place uh, particularly with palantir who you're probably familiar with this is the data analytics business that was founded by peter Thiel, who was one of the paypal crowd and then also um the earliest outside investor in facebook very rich man very smart man um his business palantir uh has cut a deal which i believe was awarded without any kind of um proper procurement process to build a single integrated data platform that pulls together all of the disparate pieces of information that exist across all the different NHS IT systems because there is still some work to be done to properly integrate all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, Palantir is a, a private sector provider. They work with global corporations. They work a lot across the pharmaceutical industry and they also work with our NHS. We're paying them $500 million, I think it is, to do this, this data integration project. You know, so that's going on in the background. Um, and uh, also the regulatory environment has been manipulated, I believe, to be conducive to enabling the systems. And actually, if you read, um, very, really eye-opening, actually, and then most people don't go and read government policy on anything. You know, they just assume that it's fine and, and you know, you know, someone somewhere is checking this stuff to make sure that actually the, the, the policies that, that are being enacted are, are, are in the best interest of the, the population that's paying for them. Uh, but if you go and read the Life Sciences Bill from 2021, uh, essentially what you, what you, what's being described in there is, well, first of all, an industry. Yeah, so actually the health system is being described by Boris Johnson, as it was at the time, but, you know, the, really the entire clinical and academic and pharmaceutical establishment in this country and internationally, rather than talking about our health system as a way of um, uh, primarily improving the health and well-being of the British people, which is what it should be there to do, it's actually talked about in terms of, a, of, of an industry and a market. Right. So all of, the, all of the headline messages are about um, the relaxation of regulation. The alignment between regulatory bodies and, uh, uh, and, and industry and, and the political classes and how streamlined everything is becoming and how quick it is to market your drugs in the, the UK health system. Um, uh, they, they boast about the levels of inward investment that the life sciences industry has been receiving. Uh, and obviously all of this, remarkably, is positioned in the context of the World Economic Forum's Build Back Better initiative, which is referenced in the life sciences strategy in the opening statement from Boris Johnson and a couple of more times through the document. And that was released in 2021. And actually looking at that, I think, tells you everything that you need to know about the situation that we've been in and the situation as it, as it appears to be developing that I've heard that I in a way that I, I don't personally think is sustainable. Just to uh, illustrate to our, our, our audience, uh, one of the issues you raised there, which was the introduction of, uh, of, of DNA testing, um, genetic testing into the neonatal uh, pathway in the NHS. Uh, we've got here an announcement from NHS England, dated the 12th of October 2022, so pretty mm -hmm. recent. 
uh, world first national genetic testing service to deliver rapid life-saving checks for babies and kids. I think they don't mean baby goats, but still. Uh, the NHS, they write, will be able to diagnose and potentially save the lives of thousands of severely ill children and babies within days rather than weeks, with a world first national genetic testing service launching today. Announcing the groundbreaking new service, the first ever NHS and genomics conference in England, uh, NHS Chief Executive Amanda Pritchard hailed it as the start of a new era in gen gen genomic medicine. The new service will be based in Devon and will uh, rapidly process DNA samples of babies and children who end up seriously ill in hospital or, or who are born with a rare disease such as cancer. So it's not at this point every child, but I take your point. It starts. It's, it always starts with the wedge issues and the the, the um, um, seriously unwell um, infants and newborns. Uh, uh, something obviously gets a lot of sympathy, and people rather uh, are not looking at potential problems when you're when you're dealing with that sort of subject area. So that's um, just from October last year. Now. Um, <sighs> The, the nature of the NHS is something that we debate quite a lot on the column, and we've probably, each one of us has probably got different views, they overlap a fair bit, but we've all got different views uh, as to just what it is and where it's going. Um, and the, the, the phrase privatisation comes up, and you talk there about profit motives and, and, and uh, companies you know, making very substantial amounts of money to propel the NHS in a, in a set, certain direction. Um, the, the danger that I see um, in terms of an organisation like the NHS is, is the government interaction with the private sector. Because you're taking out the one thing that disciplines the private sector. You know, why is the private sector so much more efficient than government? Well, it's because if it's not, it goes out of business because someone better will come along. So the competition keeps it honest. And what are they competing for? They're competing for business. So they go into the customer and say, well, we'll try harder, we'll do better. And ultimately the customer's king because the customer, everyone's going to vote every time they have a pound. And the customer chooses. And that has its downsides, right? Because you're dealing with the masses of men and the problems of the masses of men. But it does mean that there's an ultimate arbiter which is not controllable um, that is going to make a decision in their own best interest and it means that the private sector ultimately has to serve the public. Now, there's lots of attempts to make it otherwise, there's lots of attempts to manipulate the public, there's lots of attempts to set up cartels, all of which fail. Um, because you've got this ground, this bedrock of the basic game is you have to serve the public so that they'll come back and buy your product or service again. If you introduce coercive taxation as a means of generating money, so essentially the government's pointing a gun at your head and say, you give us your money or you go to jail, we'll, we'll ruin your life. That's one of the major areas of choice has gone. And then when you have a large centrally controlled organisation so that there's physically no choice in the country, the rest of the choice is gone. You couple the profit motive to that degree of power, you get something else. It's called privatisation, but it's not privatisation. It's a fascist system where you have private profits, but the private companies are directed by the state. This is a, this is a German Nazi system. This is a fascist system. And... It's not, it's not nationalised as, as we understand it. It's not privatised either. It's somewhere, it's the third way. Do you see that particular interaction as, as especially a threat? Yes. And you're right, it is fascist. It's the, the technical definition of fascism as, as, as laid out by Mussolini. Uh, it it ha is enabling and encouraging appalling behaviours. Um, what we're looking at is essentially corporate state capture. So actually the, the interests of the corporations are the primary concern of the state. 
and actually all of the things that I've just described in terms of uh, the preparation of the marketplace that is the health system by the Tory government and um, the, the the and a whole bunch not just the Tory government a whole bunch of other people in this ecosystem surrounding it um, is is geared up primarily towards helping large international companies investment funds to make money uh, and um, that is uh, almost certainly to the detriment of of what they're supposed to be doing, which is to be protecting and improving the health of the nation. One of the aspects of this which I've, I've noticed more strongly is, is that when you take this sort of system, this odd hybrid third-way uh, system, and um, it takes good ideas and it kind of twists them. Right? So an example would be in education, which is run on a similar basis in Britain for the most part. Um, if you take, um, they, they were realising, we've, we've got a problem. You know, quality's down, enthusiasm's down, uh, morale's down, and, you know, we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not really achieving what we should be achieving here. So we need to improve. So they looked to the private sector and they said, okay, right, we've got this thing called total quality management and it's revolutionized um, Japanese automotive industry and, um, and it's being used a lot. So we're going to bring that in. So they brought all the ideas of total quality management. So this is small tests of change, um, a, a, a cycle of, of, uh, of uh, coming up with an idea, putting it into, into action reviewing it and then deciding again and, and, and having an iterative approach to continuous improvement. Okay. But they got one thing tragically wrong. They didn't view the child and its parents and the family as the customer. They viewed the child as the product. The customer was the state. So we went from being how to better serve people to treating people as though they are literally gears in a gearbox, you know, to be improved and made standardized. So all of these good ideas, which, which worked well, were, were subverted by a fundamental misunderstanding of what they were trying to do. And this idea, who's the customer, because ultimately in these situations, the customer's always the state because the state enables the profit. So what the state wants, the state gets. And it, 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 it kind of takes everything and somehow um, makes it a, a kind of um, uh, Frankenstein's monster instead of a, instead of a, a, a beautiful human being. It, it, it puts all the pieces back together, but they're not quite right. Um, it, is that something you recognise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, like the, 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 the life sciences strategy, that document is, is, it describes a market. It describes a, a, a state enabled industry, biotechnological industry that is geared towards profit making for UK PLC, but also international partners. That's, that's what they that's the discussion. That's what they're talking about. And um, as you kind of rightly pointed out, the, the, the individual, the citizen, the person that all this is supposed to be on, on behalf of is essentially discussed as a, a, like a raw material in the production process. They're not a beneficiary. They're, they're a, a unit to be tracked and manipulated and experimented on and uh, a, a kind of secondary in, in, in that regard. They're like a natural resource for the system as opposed to being, you know, the, the, the primary focus of, you know, or the primary beneficiary of, of, of what's going on. And you use a really interesting term there, which is this idea of uh, the, the kind of Frankenstein's monster. Um, and that's actually what genomics is seeking to do, right? This idea that um, somehow we come into this world inherently flawed and it's within the gift of these scientists these uh and these business people to um to to to, to analyze us and know us at a molecular level and then prescribe experimental interventions yeah they actually want to go in and edit your 
genomic sequence. That's what these technologies are designed to do. It's what they're capable of doing. Um, and to do that at an industrial scale across the entire population and to do it using the technologies that have driven this fourth industrial revolution that we've all been part of, subjected to over the past few years. And actually, if you look at I mean, one of the most interesting developments, and actually it's one of the reasons that I reached out to you to have this conversation, one of the most interesting things that I've seen um, in this space over the past couple of months is a strategic partnership that's just been announced between Moderna and IBM, which was announced in mid-April. And essentially what this means is that Moderna, who specialise in RNA products, and in fact before the COVID pandemic hit, had never actually marketed any kind of product. So they never produced a pharmaceutical. It was just the all speculative, experimental innovation that they were that they, that they've been doing. And COVID presented them with an opportunity to become extremely big, extremely quickly, and to make a whole lot of money. Um, obviously, as they were doing that, there's been a whole bunch of human damage that's been caused, right, while they've been making their money. But you know, let's put that aside for the moment. Um, but what is that? What is that? business now doing what's the next phase that it sees in its development into an ever larger ever more profitable ever ever more systemically significant pharmaceutical business because that's what it is it's to sign a deal with ibm so that they can use a new tool that ibm have created which is a generative ai tool so this is like an industrialized version of um like a chat gpt and i'm sure that uh, many of your viewers will be familiar with chat GPT. It's all that a lot of people have been talking about for the past six months plus. Essentially what it does is it, um, it, it produces new content based on inputs that you put into the system, but it's generative. Yeah? So um, what IBM and Moderna are, are seeking to do through this alliance is to use that artificial intelligence that's been created by IBM to generate new genomic data, new, new genomic information that can then be inserted into the patient by Moderna using their experimental chemicals that they're going to create on the back of this AI-generated material. And I just think that that is unbelievably sinister. Uh, the idea that we would allow machines, computers to re-engineer human code is uh that's 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 dystopian stuff that i don't think that even i had even thought we'd get to this point um even over the, even having watched what's happened over the past couple of years but that that is what they are doing that's what they're building that's what this marketplace has been set up to enable and that is what sits at the absolute center of nhs strategy uk government life sciences and healthcare strategy and all of the associated stuff that goes with that, right? Including how we're training clinicians, how we're funding research, uh, what the academic institutions are doing. So kind of like deep research in places like Oxford and Cambridge, for example, all of it or significant amounts of it is geared towards enabling this system, uh, building these algorithms to interrogate people's genomic data and then to make recommendations about how to edit it and to improve it based on whatever it is that these these scientists come up with. And um, it's, 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 it's actually, I, I find it horrific, you know, to, to, to look at this and, um, and to, to understand the mindset, really, because, you know, as I, as I said on that Dellingpod interview, um, you know, I, I'm a trustee of a public health charity called Public Health Collaboration, and nothing that I'm saying here or doing around these issues, particularly as it relates to, to genomics, has got anything to do with, with PHC. It's purely focused on improving the metabolic health of, of the nation. But through that position, it's been made clear to me, and I've seen the evidence, that um, you could address most of the chronic issues that we face, the chronic health issues that we face as a nation, through making simple changes to diet and exercise, yeah, so things like ultra high processed foods, for example, we shouldn't be eating those. Um, we need to lead much less sedentary lives. Uh, there's a whole bunch of issues in terms of things like the way that we use technology, 
um, but also over prescribing and the the kind of like uh, this 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 constant drive to 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 to, to um to pharmaceutically treat illness, which is the default position of, of Western medicine, is is um, uh, 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 basically, you know, that is really the root cause of a lot of the problems. So actually, rather than investing in big data analytics, artificial intelligence platforms to um, go around sniffing out opportunities to algorithmically interfere with people's genetic codes, it's probably some exponentially cheaper and simpler things that could be done to have a transformational impact on society that would i mean really 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 change quality of life in 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 this nation but no one in the medical establishment no one in the political system certainly no one in the genomics industry yeah whether they're the, the actual operators or the investors or any of the other participants in that space no one in that space is interested in having that conversation because it would mean that they then don't have their golden goose to lay golden eggs for them for the next however long, you know, and until the next iteration of whatever hellish uh, industrialized health initiatives are coming down the pipe next, you know, whatever they've got cooked up for five years, 10 years down the track when they've reaped the profits of all of these new things that they've built using the profits generated by COVID vaccines. And, you know, and that's 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 the situation we're looking at. The aspect of this where we're looking at um, a great deal, not just human greed, but a great deal of human arrogance, um, is is a is a bit worrying as well because we've seen the medical medical industrial complex as we know it before COVID and um, mRNA vaccines and genomics became a thing. We've seen them produce drugs like thalidomide. We've seen them endorse smoking tobacco as one of the best things you can do for your health. And, you know, trust your doctor because he he smokes camel cigarettes. Um, We've seen a situation where even under their analysis, um, the death caused by medical intervention is the third leading cause of death in the West after uh, heart disease and cancer. And the number one constituent part of that is correctly prescribed medicines. Not not things that are given in error, not, not medicines that are taken in overdose quantities. Correctly prescribed medicines killing people. This is the biggest contributor. So we've we've seen enough to have a weariness of the um, of at least some of the, the the announcements and prescriptions of the medical profession and particularly the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, that we've seen in 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 vaccines and in the search for viruses to generate the next opportunity for um, uh, for. Uh, medical intervention, major problems, um, major catastrophes, not not often discussed in the mainstream media, but well uh, well documented, and areas where such as the AIDS um, scare, where the, the official the official narrative and the facts just just don't align. We add into that. DNA, where up until very recently, most of the most of the human genome was called junk DNA. It was junk. It, it didn't do anything. And piece by piece, we're now learning. No, it's not junk. It does do things. So clearly, the level of knowledge is very much substandard. But we're handing over to um, to to this complex of organisations all of this potential power to do harm, it's a bit worrying. Now, so what's the solution? A lot of people would say regulation. Through um, the COVID crisis, we've been paying a lot of attention to uh, the MHRA, the regulator of choice in the UK. Whenever you ask any of the government agencies about safety of, for example, COVID-19 vaccines, they all point to the MHRA. They know. 
And when you go to the MHRA, it's not a very impressive response. Uh, how do you see the position of regulators uh, in, this, in this area you know, with reference to genomic science and with reference to big data? It's a really good question. I think, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll touch on a, a couple of things. Um, I think the, the first thing to say is that, um, and, and, and actually I spent a couple of years uh, uh, really looking at artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms and understanding, to the best of my knowledge, because this is complicated stuff, right? And I, I'm not a developer or a coder. I don't write these algorithms. My, my main focus is understanding what, kind of how they work and what they can actually do. And then um, like ethical issues around how they should be deployed, particularly as it relates to, to gathering um, citizen data, which is a, a point you touched on earlier. And the general consensus, it, particularly you know, even from the people operating at the top level of this space, which is an emergent space, is that the regulator has absolutely no clue how to regulate this stuff and they don't even understand the technology. And what you're probably looking at is something a little bit like what happened you know, particularly happened in 2008 with the financial crisis where you had the banks coming up with these novel financial instruments that no one probably even then really understood, but just seemed to, to deliver lots of money to them. So, hey, let's run with it. And we all know what happened there. We had a collapse in the global financial system. Um, we're probably looking at a similar situation here today with, um, with, with, with artificial intelligence, right? I mean, the, the regulator in particular isn't quick enough, isn't fast enough, doesn't understand the technology well enough, and is just playing catch up constantly while people in the private sector are off building these things and and and, and creating a regulatory environment where they can go and deploy them and you know all that kind of stuff's going on going on in the background. Um, so that's that, that that's part of it. Regulators don't really understand it, and then and then the MHRA in particular, um, it's difficult to say whether they are compromised or just completely incompetent but the net outcome is is basically the same thing right which is that they are uh they've done an appalling job particularly over the past three years and i mean and, and probably for some time before that it's just that oh, oh it's only the last three years that's really thrust them into the spotlight given the the visibility and importance of the stuff that they've been advising on right whether that's covid vaccines or genomics as, as, as we're talking about um, and I would draw your viewers' attention to, to two things here, right? The first is, uh, 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 well, actually, no, let's say this, let's look at three things. The first one is a great article that was on um, UK Column by someone called Hedley Reese in May this year, where he attended, I believe it's a he, may not be. Um, I'm not, not familiar with the name Hedley. Sounds like a guy. Um, he attended a, a presentation by the MHRA to talk about how fantastic they are, uh, as, as they generally do, and actually what he saw and what we read about was um, a whole bunch of uh, uh, basically removing of guardrails around the development of um, pharmaceutical treatments. Yeah, so even to the point of um, uh, in, in, in now the MHRA will do remote factory inspections where an individual in the regulator will sit at their desk and they will have a video stream like the one you and I are on now, David, uh, rather than going in person to a factory to inspect the quality, to make sure that all the, the, the appropriate controls are in place, to make sure that the regulations are being followed as they should be, to shake the hands of the people that work there, to look them in the eye, to gauge the, you know, that kind of, it, uh, intuitive sense that we have that something is right or isn't right, like all of that stuff has now just been taken away, and it's perfectly uh, it's perfectly fine apparently for uh, UK healthcare regulators to never even go to a production facility that's producing pharmaceuticals that are going to go into our supply chain. Yeah, and that's just one example of the way that uh, the the regulatory environments have been degraded. Um, the, uh, there's also a fantastic video that I only watched a couple of days ago, um, by Professor Norman Fenton, where he analyzes a speech by June Rain, who is the CEO of the MHRA. And basically she's up there talking about how fantastic, uh, the, uh, the, the MHRA yellow card scheme is actually. So she's talking about how great this piece of technology is or this system that we have for tracking 
adverse events to to drugs when they've been administered to people, as you mentioned. Um, it's actually one of the main causes of death in in, in the health system is is, is 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 pharmaceuticals. So it's really important for us to understand when people are dying or when people are being injured, particularly when it's new drugs going out into the market, like the COVID vaccines. And if you're following this program, you probably know that COVID vaccination has caused more injury and more death than all other drugs combined in the history of um, yellow card reporting. I mean, the, 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 the red flags coming out of that system have been impossible to miss, impossible to ignore over the past three years. And yet the MHRA have not just ignored them. June Rain in this video that's uh, looked at by Norman Fenton is essentially standing up and communicating actual statistics that have come out of the system, but is basically describing them as a good. Yeah, so actually we got this system for tracking injuries and deaths from novel pharmaceuticals. Um, but when the system tells us that the novel pharmaceuticals are killing and injuring people, we, we're going to ignore it. So actually the, the system isn't being used in the way it's supposed to be being used. Um, but And then we're also going to present that data as somehow some kind of success on our part. Um, and from from my perspective, that's that's just it, it's well, it's clearly deeply dishonest. But my view is that the medical establishment, clinical establishment, is essentially engaged in a mass gaslighting operation against the British population right now. Yeah. So that's that's the second point. And then the third point, and again, it's one of the reasons why I reached out to get in touch with you, is that Genomics England has just entered into a strategic partnership with the MHRA to use genomics data as a way of projecting potential adverse events in future use of, of novel pharmaceuticals. So we've got, um, we've got a, 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 a two government-aligned or government-controlled entities, yeah? so MHRA and Genomics England, both of whom are deeply questionable, both in their formulation, like what they've actually been set up to do, but also how they're currently being run and the individuals at the top of those organizations and what they're there for and who they're designed to serve, which appears to be industry and the city, yeah, as opposed to um, the British population, coming together to create a, a new turbo whiz, next generation, yellow card reporting scheme, despite the fact that for the past three years, we've been ignoring all of the safety data that's been coming out of the yellow card, the existing yellow card reporting scheme caused by novel pharmaceuticals using RNA technology, which is one of the fundamental components of the genomics ecosystem. It's absolutely remarkable. And, and I can only read it as, um, I think it's, 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 basically about message building and uh, narrative and communication and um the people at the top level of the health system and this is this, this is all of them across the piece particularly the politicians but you know like the 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 the, 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 the whole establishment as far as i can tell are perfectly happy to go out in public and present things that are knowingly damaging or uh, and and to reveal data that in any sane assessment should have stopped these things happening um, and, and to present this stuff as a good thing and that this is the, the, the only and unavoidable forward direction that we're going to take across healthcare and it's all about saving lives despite the fact that all the data we're showing you demonstrates that we aren't saving lives, we're actually damaging, damaging lives. And um, they're basically relying on the fact that um, large swathes of the population don't understand what they're talking about. It's a big part of it, uh, but also are just completely disengaged from and disenfranchised by the by the political process and the way that the system's being run, and therefore they believe that they can they can pretty much get away with anything, and that that's kind of what I think that we're looking at right now. These are excellent points. I mean, the 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 double mindedness that the MHRA has is, continues to show over the yellow card scheme is a, is a sight to behold because. When people go to them and say, look, this is the data on the yellow card scheme. Look at how many deaths. This is more deaths, more more serious harm that's, than has been caused by every vaccine, every medication you've ever had traced on this system. And this is just in the COVID-19 
uh, vaccination. You know, this, this must require action. This is a red flag. They, they turn around and attack their own system. They say, oh, well, there's a yellow card system. Anyone can post to that. It's not checked. It doesn't mean there's a causal link. Um, you know, it's not just clinicians that post it. It's ordinary members of the public. And there's all this chat to make you think the yellow card scheme data's garbage. Yeah. Then if you go to them and say, um, you're charged with uh, protecting the public from harm and making sure pharmaceuticals are safe, how do you do that? The first thing is, oh, we've got this yellow card system. It's wonderful. And it's the same person with both these opinions, and they don't seem to see the contradiction. It's very, very bizarre. Um, we've, without an awful lot of success sometimes, have, have written to the, the MHRA asking for an explanation on various things. When, the, when one of the drug companies um, producing COVID-19 so-called vaccination shots, uh, uh, gene therapy, correctly defined, um, turned around and said, yes, we are seeing some serious uh, adverse reactions, some of them with a fatal outcome, nice language. They mean they were definitely, they knew they were killing people. Uh, I wrote to the MHRA and said, look, uh, it's now in writing from one of the pharmaceutical giants that at least some people are being killed by COVID-19 vaccination. Um, you, but you're saying that it's, it's still correct that we roll this out to the whole population. In fact, we should extend it to children. You're saying that because you say that, well, the benefits outweigh the harms. So since you're actually killing people, you must have really good data to, bit, to back that statement up. It must be really hard statistical proof that the benefits outweigh the harm. Can I please see the statistical risk, um, the quantitative risk assessment? And I'm still waiting. That was 2021, I think I asked that question, and I'm still waiting on an answer two years later. Uh, because there is no answer, because there's no risk assessment, because it just doesn't exist. When you look at the decision to extend vaccinations, COVID-19 vaccinations to children, who were at no risk from COVID-19, but who had been harmed in the trials, um, how the MHRA could sign off on that is a, is a mystery to me. I, I mean, how do they sleep at night? I mean, it can't all be incompetent. Some of them must know the degree of risk they're taking. Or do they just not understand statistics? I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange organisation. And it seems to be there, as you said, to promote industry interests and industry development, not to protect the public. And in any, at any rate, having those two functions in one organisation is catastrophic to its integrity and focus, surely, I would have thought. Um, we're, we've been talking for nearly an hour, I, and I, I would like to go on to some other things, but we probably will need to come back to pick those up another day. I'd like to finish, if you could, um, since we're talking about uh, COVID and COVID-19, um, if you could explain how you see COVID-19 as playing a part in all of this. How much is it been the spur to move this forward, the enabler? How big a part has COVID-19 played in this whole industry rollout uh, into genomic science? Um, you know, has it been vital? Yes, um, it's a really good question. So, I mean, the, the science has been around for quite some time and they've been industrializing it for some time too. Um, so actually, Genomics England itself was uh, announced a decade ago. Um, it was um, 2013. It was um, introduced by uh, Jeremy Hunt, who was then the health secretary, um, as, as, a, as a new entity that was going to operate in this space. Um, so the the, ten, the technology was already there, the ambition was already there, but COVID-19 was really the trigger point, I think, uh, particularly for the introduction of RNA technology into the supply chain. Um, as uh, you touched on, these are, these are novel gene therapies that have been marketed as vaccines. They aren't vaccines in the traditional sense. Um, and the government really needed a crisis 
I believe, in order to accelerate their introduction into mass adoption, mainstream use. And actually, we've heard people say exactly that. I can't remember who the individual was or what company they were representing, but it was at a World Economic Forum meeting, I believe, in the past couple of years. There was a senior pharmaceutical industry executive who basically said that um, the only reason that we've been able to to get these out into the market is because of this crisis, and I, and, uh, I absolutely believe that uh, that that's true. Yeah, I think that um, uh, the, uh, the 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 fear and the uh, the terror that we were subjected to, which is reduced significantly because you know you can only ramp these things up for so long before people become wise and suspicious to them um was essentially a a, just a a mechanism for um accelerating this technology and a whole bunch of other things into into society yes ben thank thank you very much for your time today it's been a, it's been fascinating listening to you uh, before you go is there any is, is there any final thoughts you would like to leave our audience with any final thoughts? Um, I think that the main thing I spend my time thinking about uh, at the moment is how do we create parallel systems that will allow us to disengage from the the, the, the mainstream systems that that uh, essentially where much of our economic, social, political, spiritual activity takes place uh, currently. You know, whether that's in healthcare or, um, or or anywhere else for that matter, the education system is another great example. Finance, wherever it might be, um, the, the the mainstream systems have been degraded, uh, and in a way that is designed to benefit a tiny few at the expense of the the mass population, and that's true absolutely everywhere. Um, and disengaging from those systems is 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 absolutely possible. And um, there are uh, people all around this country who do phenomenal work on a daily basis to create new methods for delivering healthcare, new methods for delivering education, new types of economic activity uh, that are much more focused on local people, local communities rebuilding our national prosperity at the expense of um, international corporations and international investment funds. Um, and ultimately, that the success of that is going to be down to, to, to us. And it's not going to be handed to us by anyone in Westminster, anyone in the mainstream of the political system. Um, I think that we have to opt out of, opt out of it, opt out of it. It's a false, it's a false uh, it's a false system. It doesn't provide us with any actual choice. It doesn't fix any problems. It's actually designed, as far as I can tell, to create and perpetuate problems. Um, and it's down to the British people yeah, to, to come together and to create collective solutions that are going to carry us forward into the future and to get away from what's currently being promoted by those in power and those that are helping those in power do the things that they're doing. So that would be my final message. Ben, until next time, thank you very much for your time.